listening to Humanity's Human, the podcast where I talk about whatever I want, and today that means an introduction to Shakespeare's play, Much Ado About Nothing. I'm not sure if you remember my Othello episode from last year, but this one's going to be along the same grain, and I hope it's helpful. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about characters, and then next episode, I'm going to talk about themes and motifs. In order for this podcast to be useful to you, please ensure that you know the basic storyline of the play, because I won't be providing a summary, so... Maybe take a few seconds to look at the spark notes before you hit play again. Also, I'm it's raining at the moment, so sorry if you can hear that. Okay, on to the episode. Much Ado About Nothing was written by Shakespeare in 1598, but the story takes place during the Italian Wars in Messina, which went from 1494 to 1559. Shakespeare uses the setting of Messina as a kind of shield from criticism, because the society in the play is exactly like Elizabethan society in England at the time, but because of the nature of monarchy and the divine right of kings, or in this case queens, it was very difficult to criticise things outright. Therefore, in order to talk about his own society, he simply changed the setting to a far-off land where anything could happen. This also allows him to include characters from lots of different places in Europe and Italy, including Aragon, Padua, and Florence. English people had a lot of preconceptions about foreigners, such as that Italians were very dramatic and that Venetian women were all very promiscuous, and so this made them more likely to accept the things that he said because if he made any criticisms, they already had some negative preconceptions. Much Ado itself isn't an entirely original work, but it's actually based on the plots from some other popular literature, particularly a poem called Lodovico Ariosto, which includes the marriage between Hero and Claudio and Don John's attempts to foil it. From a modern perspective, this would be plagiarism, but Elizabethan audiences appreciated recycled work. Shakespeare only created two original characters for this play, or at least two original main ones, um, which are Benedict and Beatrice, and perhaps that's why they're the best and most interesting ones. One thing I did struggle with when studying this play is just the sheer amount of characters, but once you get to know them, you'll find it easier to write about them in essays. Perhaps the most important thing about Shakespeare's Messina is how hierarchical it is. There is a clear delineation of importance, from most noble to least noble, and this opens the play up to some really, really good class-based analysis. One of the highest characters on the hierarchy is Leonardo, the governor of Messina. Most of the play is set in and around his home and estate, and he's also the first character to speak in the entire play, although he is second to Don Pedro in hierarchy. His key traits include the following. Firstly, he is very easily influenced. You could easily make the argument that those at the top of Mycenaean society are the most beholden to societal values, and therefore the most susceptible to the influence of others. We need to remember that societal expectations are only called expectations because they require other people to function. You won't be feeling any societal pressure unless other people are expecting you to behave in a certain way. Therefore, we see Leonardo bending to the will of other people very easily throughout the play probably because he is afraid of losing his position and respect at the top of society. For example, he seems pretty eager to give away his daughter Hero to just about anyone to marry. Because he is under so much pressure at the top of the social hierarchy, he doesn't necessarily care whether or not Hero is happy, but he does care whether or not the match that he makes for her is good for his own status. First, he prepares to, quote, acquaint Hero with all that she may be the better prepared for an answer, unquote, when he thinks Don Pedro, the prince, will ask for her hand in marriage. 
but later just as quickly tells Claudio to quote take him of his daughter unquote and that quote his grace hath, hath made the match unquote demonstrating how easily his desires shift and change depending on those around him. The prince Don Pedro, who is another character at the top of the social hierarchy, is similarly fickle, as shown in Act 3, when Don John reveals Hero's supposed infidelity. At first, Don Pedro states, quote, I will not think it, unquote. But as soon as Claudio announces his intentions to, quote, shame her, unquote, the next day, Don Pedro completely changes his stance and agrees to, quote, join him to disgrace her, unquote. Another key character trait of Leonardo's is fairness and his efforts to achieve justice. He seeks Claudio's repentance for his treatment of Hero and commands him to, quote, hang an epitaph upon her tomb and sing it to her bones, unquote, after which he says he, uh, Claudio should marry Hero's cousin who, for some reason, who could possibly guess why, looks and acts exactly like her. Whether this is a good punishment to a modern audience is questionable, but it still reveals an earnest effort to seek justice for, well, I don't know if it's for his daughter, but it's certainly for his own reputation. Interestingly, uh, Leonardo doesn't do much repenting himself, which is weird considering the things he says in Act 4. But anyway. So then we've got Don Pedro, who's a Prince of Aragon, which is a region of northeast Spain. And this explains why he uses the title Don and not Prince, because Don is a Spanish term. Don Pedro has the highest status of any character in the play, and speaks incredibly formally to demonstrate this. In a lot of Shakespeare plays, uh, use of language can delineate, you know, whether or not someone's noble, and in Much Ado About Nothing, not only does language um, distinguish nobility and class, but it also distinguishes gender, because you can see throughout the play, the men are the ones who have all of the wit and the humour and the sarcasm, while the women are kind of left... They're only allowed to exhibit these traits in private, except for Beatrice, and we'll get onto that soon. An important parallel to draw between Don Pedro and Don John, his evil twin, not twin, are they? They're not. If there were twins, they would both be bastards. Okay. Um, an important parallel to draw between Don Pedro and his evil brother, Don John, is why did they turn out so differently? Is the promise of wealth and status enough to stop someone from becoming evil? More importantly, let's think about their contrasting uses of deception. When an essay topic mentions deception, I'm inclined to think about Don John's window trick, but his brother Don Pedro does just as good a job of tricking people, except it's for the right reasons. While Don John sets about trying to destroy a relationship, Don Pedro creates one, believing that Beatrice, quote, will make an excellent wife for Benedict, unquote. However, he is successfully tricked by Don John's plan, demonstrating that while he's good at creating deception, he's also incredibly susceptible to it. He remains sure that Hero is nothing more than a quote, rotten orange, unquote, all the way until Baraccio confesses himself to the crime. Never again does Don Pedro appear as sure of himself as he was at the beginning of the play. Even at the final scene, which is meant to be a celebration, Benedict notes, quote, Prince, thou art sad. Get thee a wife, get thee a wife, unquote which is kind of awkward since Don Pedro had tried to propose to Beatrice earlier on. By the end of the play, Don Pedro hasn't undergone any kind of 180 in terms of character development, but he has certainly learned to recognise his own vulnerability and inability to keep control of the events around him. Let's move on. Leonardo's daughter, Hero. In pretty much every regard, Hero is the perfect Elizabethan woman, Quiet, traditional, obedient, and naive. So quiet, in fact, that she and her future husband Claudio don't hold a full conversation 
even once, during the play. I can only imagine how awkward the discussion when she finds out that he's Team Edward or she's Team Jacob will be. What a deal breaker. Anyway, depending on your reading of the play, Hero could easily be interpreted as a foil for Beatrice, allowing for her cousin's humour and wit to shine against her, well, her nothing, I'll be honest, she's kind of boring. Alternatively, the pair could be seen as a Madonna-Whore dichotomy, even though Beatrice's whole thing is that she, quote, would rather hear her dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves her, unquote. Hero begins the play incredibly malleable in terms of her opinions and aspirations, accepting hands in marriage just as quickly as they come. She accepts Leonardo, her father's, guidance to marry Don Pedro, but then she's just as happy to accept Claudio, something which remains, most shockingly of all, true, even after he betrays her during the denunciation scene in Act 4. She does everything she's told, including pretending to, quote, die upon Claudio's words, unquote, revive, and then re-present herself to Claudio as her own cousin. At the end of the play, we do see some kind of development as she speaks up to Claudio after her unveiling, stating, quote, as surely as I live, I am a maid, unquote, demonstrating her adamance that she was always pure. Next up is Beatrice, Hero's cousin and one of Shakespeare's original contributions to the story. The opposite of her cousin, Beatrice is outspoken, witty and talkative, using words as weapons, or indeed poniards that stab, according to Benedict. Beatrice often speaks her mind without concern about decorum, even her first line being an interruption. Throughout the play, she is cunning with words, something which marks her out as an intelligent character. Beatrice is often considered a somewhat masculine, masculinized, oh I said it, a somewhat masculinized character, what with her refusal to marry a man, inappropriate humour and all around manly use of language. Her language even assumes a phallic nature, piercing into the hearts of words of those around her, as seen when Benedict says, quote, she speaks poniards and every word stabs, unquote. Now that might seem like a really subtle reference to us today, but um, when you apply this lens to Shakespeare plays, all of the draw thy sword and I'll pierce you with my dagger kind of takes on a new personality. However, Beatrice does not see language and wit as part of masculinity, and this is seen when she cries out, quote, oh, that I were a man, unquote, clearly indicating that she isn't a man and that she accepts her lack of power due to this fact. This is why she's able to use masculine language throughout the play without being called out for it. And, of course, her way with words is ever sharpened when the object of her humour is Benedict. We find out that her seemingly unexplained, quote, disdain, unquote, for him is actually rooted in a past experience where he played with her heart using, quote, false dice, unquote. In the context of Benedict, therefore, her residual feelings are buried under a thick layer of sardonic humour. We can see that Beatrice still cares about her reputation, however, through her surprise at hearing Hero describe her faults. She says, quote, Stand I condemned for pride and scorn so much, unquote, and then vows to abandon, quote, maiden pride, unquote, and contempt in favour of loving Benedict openly. Like Benedict, she exhibits symptoms of love sickness, claiming, quote, I am exceeding ill, I am stuffed, I cannot smell, unquote, which not only relates to the medical knowledge at the time, which was pretty much that you're a sack full of fluid called humours, but characterises love as something which makes you lose your sense of reason. Love inhibits rational thinking in many of Shakespeare's plays, including this one. 
By the end of the play, Beatrice hasn't changed that much as a person. She's still bitingly witty and sarcastic, but she has overcome her fear of vulnerability for Benedict. Speaking of Benedict, let's talk about his character. His quote, merry war, unquote, with Beatrice serves to demonstrate their chemistry from the very beginning of the play, even contrasting their relationship against the sad situation with Claudio and Hero. At no point was I like, God, I wish Claudio and Hero would just kiss already, because they literally didn't deserve it. Anyway, Benedict is determined to, quote, live a bachelor, unquote, and Beatrice is calling him, quote, Signor Montanto, unquote, Montanto, Montanto, mm. It's in, the, it's in the play, you can find it yourself, suggests that he is successful in this, with Montanto being a sexual innuendo. It takes for him to overhear the information that Beatrice is in love with him during the gulling scene to admit that he, quote, loves nothing in the world so well as her, unquote, and, fu and fully open his arms to her love. Benedict is held up as an example of a man who uses his higher position in both gender and class hierarchies correctly after having undergone considerable character development. Following his admission that, quote, enough, he is engaged, unquote, he transforms into perhaps the most noble man in the play, and his behaviour thereafter is juxtaposed against irresponsible behaviour by Claudio, Don Pedro, and Leonardo, who he leaves to their, quote, gossip-like humour, unquote. Benedict understands his position in the societal hierarchy above Beatrice, but rather than abusing this power, as Claudio does with Hero, he empathises with her and aims to grant her the agency she so sorely lacks. Although one man is not powerful enough to dismantle the oppressive systems which keep minorities down in Messinian society, he has the maturity to work around these systems and help the woman he loves, even if it means, quote, killing Claudio, unquote, his closest friend. Benedict and Beatrice's relationship is one which almost exists outside of the patriarchy, as they show a deep understanding of each other and true equality in their relationship. Rather than viewing Beatrice as an object, as Claudio does with Hero, Benedict allows himself to be, quote, known of old, unquote, by Beatrice, a power and privilege not afforded to most women in Elizabethan societies where most marriages were, um, like, arranged and people wouldn't even know each other before they were together, and I mean, women just had to be like portable dishwashers anyway, so why would she even need a personality? It is, above all, their equality in communication, both through equal number of lines, called stigamithia, and quality of wit, which makes Benedict and Beatrice the most admirable couple in the play. On to Claudio. Claudio is, as everyone could probably guess, my least favourite character. I think he's a little spineless worm. But I won't let that stop me from providing a fair analysis, probably. Some teachers and study guides suggest that Claudio is a foil for Benedict in the same way that Hera is for Beatrice, but I'd say it's definitely to a lesser extent. Claudio displays an immaturity and compliance which places him in the perfect position to be influenced by Benedict and his jaded thoughts about women. The audience is definitely directed to compare the two men, as in the first scene, a messenger notes that Benedict, quote, is most in the company of the right noble Claudio, unquote. Although the structure of this sentence makes it sound like Benedict is the one being looked after, like he's in the company of, um, it soon becomes clear that Claudio is the one who is following the directions in their friendship, and perhaps a little too well at that. Importantly, although it is Benedict who is always joking about, quote, gold-tipped horns, unquote, and, quote, horn madness, unquote, it is Claudio who allows these ideas to infiltrate his mind, and it is Claudio who acts upon them. 
Claudio was apparently attracted to Hero on an earlier visit, but his mind was too clouded with, quote, war thoughts, unquote, to pay attention to her, which have now been replaced by, quote, soft and delicate desires, unquote. However, we do see later on that, th that his military prowess remains his most important attribute, as he treats Hero with an increasingly oppositional and warlike attitude. Incredibly naive and pliable, Claudio is deceived by Don John twice, and then allows himself to be tricked by Don Pedro into marrying Hero's... cousin. By the end of the play, Claudio remains a static character. He is still immature, ready to agree to whatever marriage plan presents itself to him, and lucky that a forgiving Hero and her family will accept him. So, we've been building up to this. Who's doing all the deceiving in the play? Let's talk about Don John the Bastard. He's very much a Shakespeare villain, in the sense that he doesn't seem to have any real motives for what he does. But because this play is a comedy, Don John's existence isn't a disturbing suggestion that true evil is real, like Iago, but rather he's just a simple mischief maker. In Act 1, he says that his, quote, sadness is without limit, unquote, and that he, quote, cannot hide what he is, unquote. And that might suggest that, there, that there's some kind of reasoning for why he's committing all of these crimes, why he's trying to stir up so much mischief. But if he's sad, like what's making him sad is my question. He cites that he was, quote, born under Saturn, unquote, as a reason for his demeanor, as um, people born under Saturn were thought to be ill-tempered and melancholy. And this definitely would have struck a chord with an Elizabethan crowd because they were nothing more than a bunch of astrology girls. Perhaps we can point to his status as a bastard for embittering him enough to commit the crimes he does. When he's unsuccessful at gaining recognition through military battle with his brother Don Pedro, Don John turns his content, his discontent, he's not contented, he's in fact discontented, he turns his discontent towards conspiracies to hurt those he envies. By the end of the play, he hasn't changed whatsoever. He's actually tried to escape punishment, having, quote, taken flight, unquote. But... That's to be expected of a comedy villain. Finally, we have the character of Dogbury, the constable of Messina who was in charge of the Night Watch, and also the source of much comedy throughout the play. And most things I say about Dogbury in this point can really be extrapolated to apply to the Night Watch as a whole. Dogbury's men discover the deception of Don John, but it only comes to light after it is far too late and the deed has already been done. There are two reasons for this. Firstly, because Dogbury's bumbling way with words uh, I can't even talk, maybe I'm Dogbury. Um, his bumbling way with words renders him unintelligible most of the time. But secondly, because he is of lower status than most of the characters in the play, and is therefore not treated with enough respect to say what he needs to say. When Dogbury frantically approaches Leonardo with a matter that, quote, discerns him dearly, unquote, his malapropism, which is like when you mess up two words, so he meant to say concerns, but he said discerns, so that's called a malapropism, um, his malapropism suggests that he is of a lower intellect. On a surface level, Dogbury is nothing but comedic relief and a satirised version of the Night Watchmen who were considered to be irresponsible and ineffective in Elizabethan times, and Leonardo clearly views them in this very light. With only six lines of prose compared to Dogbury's multiple paragraphs, Leonardo is able to suggest that, a that the person before him is a farce and an obstacle to his wedding preparations. Leonardo's power over Dogbury comes from his status as Duke of Messina, an office which blends seamlessly into the landscape of wealth, high education, and noble family relations that make up his person. Wielding these social powers, he demeans and belittles Dogbury, despite the fact that the information he holds will directly affect Hero's fate. 
Leonardo's misuse of his power to dismiss someone of a lower class is a direct obstruction to justice, and indeed results in his own pain. In many ways, Leonardo comes out of this scene looking more foolish than Dogbury. Alright, that's all for this episode. I hope you learnt something, and, uh, you know, or at least I hope it refreshed your memory. Make sure to leave this podcast a review on Apple Podcasts if you want me to keep making them. And I'll probably be back next time with an episode on themes. If you want to contact me about this episode or any episode of the podcast, um, you can reach me on Instagram at ChristelleIsn'tReal. That's K-R-Y-S-T-E-L isn't real. And until next time, this has been Humanity's Human. Humanity's Human.